This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. For the last time in the year 2021, greetings, salutations, and welcome to another installment of the COVID Report, the show dedicated to providing you with comprehensive coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. I am your host, Ukameli Hlewakwapovana, here to give you the show that gives you all of the facts, all of the stats, all of the figures, and none of the misinformation as it pertains to all things COVID-19. Bit of a sore one sitting in here in the studio at this time, I'm not going to lie. Troubling reports um, servicing, especially within the arts and entertainment sector, uh, where numerous uh, gigs are being cancelled, left, right and centre, numerous artists and creatives finding themselves no longer in possession of lucrative work gigs that have been cancelled due to the ongoing and increasingly difficult crisis of managing the COVID-19 pandemic in South Africa. Just want to take this moment as a fellow artist and creative myself to extend my sympathies and my prayers to those affected by the various cancellations. Let's keep our heads high, let's keep the flame and will to create burning alive as we ride what is in, what is definitely can be confirmed as the fourth wave of COVID-19 in South Africa. Now, an emerging data survey from a new United Nations women's study confirms that the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in a shadow pandemic of violence against women and children, with one in three women worldwide reportedly experiencing physical and sexual violence, mostly by an intimate partner. Violence, I'm must remind you against women and girls is a human rights violation and since the outbreak of COVID-19 emerging data and, res- and reports from those on the front lines have shown that all types of violence against women and girls particularly domestic violence has intensified but has also been seemingly swept under the carpet thanks to the dominating nature of the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of its ability to attract all of the headlines joining us to unpack this representing the civil rights organization not in my name. It is my pleasure to welcome Lesejo Mahlangu on to the COVID report. Lesejo, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Morning and um, I mean evening and evening to your listeners also as well and thank you guys for having us this evening. It's an absolute pleasure to have you, Lesejo. Let's start by unpacking this issue. In what ways do you think the issue of gender-based violence has been ignored or swept under the rug, so to speak, during the course of our fight against the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, just as I was thinking about this interview, I, 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 I passed through a text that said, just be kind to people because you honestly don't know what they're going home to. And what I can tell you right now is that people that you're interacting with on a daily basis just don't have the guts or they just don't have a safe space to talk about the violence that they go home to, right? It's, 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 it's you know, including the pandemics that you have been outlining throughout uh, the course of, 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 of the show, being, being the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, being gender-based violence, Unemployment also is one of them, and we know that at the receiving end of these stats are again black women, particularly, right, who have to stay and afford to stay in households with men who are incredibly abusive and they use their power, whether it be financial power, whether it be any kind of power that they have over these women and children to impose themselves and to impose violence on the bodies of women and children. And unfortunately, these are not things that these, and you know, it's, it's I always talk about just how the media highlights gender-based violence. And while 
we should be talking about obviously the very explicit cases and scenarios that come and are sold to us in terms of you know women dying, women being killed. We must tell the difficult the difficult stories about gender-based violence and how it manifests to different people in different ways. Now it's I I I I I take note of the of the fact that the very first question I asked you was asking uh, whether or not this issue has been ignored over the course of of dealing with this pandemic. But the reality is this is an issue that has been swept under the rug again, for lack of a better term, even before COVID nineteen became a part of our lives. So, I in your opinion, um, do you think the status of the lack of attention that's been paid to this issue has worsened or maybe even gotten better in, in, in comparison to before COVID and during this COVID-19 pandemic? I think obviously, like, you know, bulletins are obviously like now governed by COVID-19 and reporting on COVID-19, right? And the media's attention has been divided. And the media's attention has always been divided and has always used gender-based violence as a ploy. And that's why we've used existing days of activism to sort of like be very confrontational to the media and media practitioners to say that what what do you think your responsibility is in terms of how do you report gender-based violence? And it goes back to exactly what I was saying in my last submission to say that we must be willing to have other and different conversations about gender-based violence, about what does it mean to live and exist in the same space and having to love my abuser, having to live with my abuser, having to coexist with him each and every single day. And up until such a time, we are framing the conversation of gender-based violence like this. We will continue to have the simplistic ones. We will continue to wait for a critical to die. We will continue to wait for the media to tell us which case must we pay attention to. But up until we start now recognizing gender-based violence in, 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 in how, how, how it's experienced, by different kinds of women, we will not begin to know the different stories that are out there that are at the obviously because of gender based violence. So at this stage of the the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, at this stage of the height of this particular pandemic that we're talking about, the continued scourge of gender-based violence sweeping the country, does more attention need to be paid as to the steps that are taken to address the issue? Is it a matter of a lack of awareness being raised? Is it a matter of a lack of effort behind the raising of this awareness of this issue? And in what ways can we go about um, changing that to increase the visibility and awareness towards this issue and hopefully um, strike the chord that changes the course of um, the, the, the path that society is going down in relation to the continued existence of this issue? Sure. You know what? I think the, the, the attention has been there. The complaining has been there. Civil society and women has been doing work over the years in terms of trying to bring attention to the siege of gender-based violence in their lives, in corporate, in their jobs, you know, and how they experience in different forms. I think the framing and in terms of who has been centered in the conversation of gender-based violence has been nullified. I think more than anything, women are too very, very much exhausted in terms of being framed and centered all the time in the conversation. And maybe it's about the time men start coming to the card and to the table also as well. Maybe it's about time that the conventions and the seminars that are being organized, they must be organized in the name of men. They must be organized to confront men and to get to the root of, you know, the, 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 the evil deeds 
that men get up to on the bodies of women and children, you know. I think maybe we must move away from a narrative that constantly wants to victimize women. And women are victimized by these men, you know. But I think we must move away from that narrative and perhaps be very confrontational now towards our perpetrators because of it happens to be the same person. Whether these men being violent among themselves because they are, and then being violent to us and our kids also as well. I think the conversation now needs to start being very confrontational, but also to other institutions also as well, to say that we are tired of just talks. We are tired of awareness campaigns that clearly are not getting the message across. And we want right now a more stern messaging, and more than anything, we want to be confrontational. And I think the only way that we are going to be confrontational is by getting men to be part of the conversation, to be active in the conversation, to not be defensive in the conversation, but to hear and to listen. And after listening, perhaps they must organize themselves and then hold themselves accountable. I'm latching on to what you've just said about the need for a more confrontational approach to the continuing of this conversation, especially when it comes to the role that men play in the existence of the scourge of gender-based violence. What I've observed in my own personal capacity of how this conversation unfolds, particularly in the online realm, it's something that I'm, I'm myself as identifying as a man that uh, lives in this country. It's something that I'm not proud of it's something I'm not a fan of. There's a degree of a tit for tat that seems to permeate the social media space at the very least when it when it comes to this conversation where the commentary seems to sway in the direction of oh no if uh, uh if this instance of a man or a woman abusing a man um is being publicized on uh social media being talked about on social media not enough outrage is is sparked against it but had been a man on the had the roles been reversed and it was the man that's abusing the woman. There'd be all sorts of outrage. And I've noticed how the, this, the, what, I've, what I've just been describing, this tit-for-tat approach that seems to permeate the, the online realm where this conversation is being had is doing more harm than good in terms of... Uh, in terms of alienating men from this conversation, making them feel like they don't have space to contribute. I'm talking about the men that don't um, commit these acts of gender-based violence, the men that stand firmly against the scourge of gender-based violence. How do we go, in your opinion, how do we go about getting these men on side in keeping in mind this confrontational approach that you have just described and the need for the confrontational approach that you have just described? How do we go about getting everyone on board and on side with this conversation in a way that does not alienate anyone? Sure. I think, you know what, the conversation online has definitely been quite hostile, but also it has been very sensational. And it definitely does not bring us any closer to finding solutions and, you know, to, to, to meeting each other somewhere in terms of, you know, being progressive, right? And I think that a lot of times it's because of we are all engaging from a perspective of defensiveness. We want to be defensive, right? And of course, in this regard, I think a lot of times when men do engage the issue, they're quite defensive also as well. And they will throw in a, 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 an opposing uh, scenario to try and nullify the experiences that women are saying that they are, that women are facing on a daily basis, that it's hard to be a woman because of, to be a woman is a state of violation, constant violation each and every single time. And I think what needs to happen is that we need to start engaging men in a kind of way, men need to start engaging the conversation in a kind of way that they are not defensive. 
And if they abuse against men, they is. But you don't bring it in such a time and a place when women are doing the work of raising awareness around their violations. Create your same spaces. Speak about your awareness outside of having to oppose it against the violations that women clearly go through on a daily basis. And once you move away from that kind of defensiveness and being defensive in the discourse, we allow ourselves to hear each other. We allow ourselves to hold each other accountable. But more than anything, we allow ourselves to unlearn a number of social behaviors that have made it okay for us to treat women and children the way that we treat them. And up until such a time and a place where we are willing to be people who are listening, people who are willing to participate, people who are willing to, who are willing to confront themselves also as well about in terms of their social behavior and how they've con- contributed to the violation of women and children, until such a time and a place, we are going to have a conversation where people think that they must win, when inside what must be won is the violence against women and children and other marginalized people, uh, marginalized communities also as well. What of the role that the authorities play and are supposed to play in this particular um, exchange in terms of the addressing of this issue? There have been multiple instances where um, uh, women who, or or, or any survivor of gender-based violence comes forward, shares their experiences, shares their story. And there seems to be a through line that runs through all of these experiences that are shared by these various individuals from every corner of uh, South African society that points to the lack of um, empathy, a lack of care and a lack of tact by the authorities that are supposed to be trusted with the lives of the very citizens they are meant they, they are sworn to protect at all times. Do you think the pandemic has revealed um, the, the, the actions being taken by the authorities in South Africa as inefficient and insufficient to deal with the issue of gender-based violence? And how do we go about uh, go, how do we go about holding the authorities accountable for the lack of action that they have taken in the efficient addressing of this issue? And does the amount of work that needs to go into holding the authorities accountable threaten to derail the work itself of raising awareness against gender-based violence and, and, and putting the gears in place to see to it that this issue is no longer one that plagues our society? We need specialization and we need commitment. I was quite disappointed at the report of uh, the public, uh, not the, 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 the uh, but, but Choi, uh, he's the prosecutor, the National Prosecuting Authorities, and they were reporting on all of these high-profile cases in terms of how to invest more money into uh, investigating corruption, how to invest more money and more skills into making sure that we, 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 we can pin down, you know, all of these corrupt politicians and whatnot. I think that's the biggest pandemic. Not that that's not a crisis in our country. But perhaps we need the same commitment also as well. We need specialization from the SATS all the way into our courts who are going to be sensitive to the matter. Because what we have found is that the authorities and people, personnel of the authorities, out of not being conscious and outside of not being specialists, um, outside of specialty, they tend to handle the cases quite, um, quite frankly, recklessly. And as a result, they, 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 they are committing secondary degree victimization for a number of victims because of there's no specialization put into place. If, if, if you are aware, there's a number of, most of the time when the is reporting on gender-based violence, 
there is some Tutuka clinic or some Tutuka initiative that they claim should be in all clinics and should be in all um, uh, SAPS police stations also as well. But in most police stations, they don't have that because a victim of violence or of gender-based violence should be received by a social worker who is within the force who's going to treat this with the sensitivity that it deserves. And we have found that that is not the case because of there has been no will whatsoever. There's been no will whatsoever for specialization and commitment to the issue of gender-based violence, both from the police force into our courts. And as a result, they are treated just like any other second thing that is happening or any other minor thing that's happening or any other minor crime that is happening in our society, forgetting that these are the lives of people. This is trauma. We're dealing with people who are not just leaving the matter in the courts or at the police station. They are taking it with them and to carry it for the rest of their lives. And if we don't deal with it in, in such a way that it is human sensitive, then we're not going to get anywhere. So the authorities need to start investing more in specialization of the matter, just as you can see that there is an entire COVID-19 uh, committee. There should be a gender-based violence um, uh, committee also as well. And we see all of these structures that they have created in terms of in Section 29 institutions, but we, we have not been impressed with them and far more, much more better can be done by investing more and putting more money into the work that civil society does. Um, now, Lesejo, could you quickly talk us through the work that uh, Not In My Name has been doing in the regard of addressing this issue and how this COVID-19 pandemic has made the work that Not In My Name engages in more difficult in light of the spike of um, cases that have been reported of uh, gender-based violence, particularly over the periods where we have been under um, varying degrees of hard lockdown across the country. In what ways has this COVID-19 pandemic made the work that not in my name engages in more difficult to accomplish and to do it has made it extremely difficult because like you have highlighted it has divided our attention so we don't only just want to see ourselves as just people who are waiting to see every other next gender-based violence case but we're also looking to be very responsible to responsive to the communities that we work with and the communities that are aligned with us and of course, now some of the the, 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 the the necessary and immediate needs that people would need is food. They would need water, you know. And if our funds or our resources are directed particularly towards that, we don't get the time then to invest towards awareness building around gender-based violence and violence against women, uh, children, and uh, people of marginalized communities. So it has definitely divided our attention. It has definitely sort of... Um, it, 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 it has stagnated our resources, you know, because obviously the most immediate thing that we want to respond to is making sure that people are fed, people have water, people are clean, you know, and then it, it, it sort of like really gets the matter of gender-based violence to a secondary matter, which is not, you know, but it, it has divided the work that we do, and we are hoping that, you know, um, with, with, with the control or just the do away with COVID-19 will allow us to now better serve because we want to push campaigns. We want to push awareness. We want to bring communities together to, together to have conversations about these. And unfortunately, we're not going to do it right now if people are worried about, you know, like the basic of things in terms of bread and butter.
We talk a lot about the ways in which these conversations need to be had, the kind of tact that needs to be applied to the ways in which these conversations surrounding uh, gender-based violence and the continued scourge of gender-based violence in South African society needs to be conducted. We often, um, I often observe in my own capacity, um, various commentary uh, from, from, from either side of the gender divide as it pertains to the ways in which this conversation needs to be had. And a lot of times, um, a lot of the observations I make um, uh, lend themselves towards a need for, um, for lack of a better phrase, logic and uh, calm heads to, to, to be applied to the addressing of this issue. When the reality is that for a lot of the survivors of gender-based violence, for a lot of people who, are, who may be currently experiencing gender-based violence in their respective uh, spaces... The issue issues of 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 of, accept, of of expecting a degree of logic and a degree of level headedness when it comes to addressing this issue might come across as unrealistic or unfair in many instances. Do you think that um, the issue of 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 logic and level headedness is an unfair expectation to have of people in terms of their input in addressing this issue? And how do we then go about addressing this issue effectively? with the with 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 respect to people's experiences and the way the ways in which those experiences have made those individuals feel while also acknowledging the need for a degree of 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 levity for lack of a better term in addressing this issue once and for all uh, yes and I, I think that that's a very important conversation right and I think that we don't get to dismiss lived experiences because of logic and because of rationality. And we also don't get to tell people to rationalize with their lived experiences. But also the thing about lived experiences and the thing about something that either affects or infects each and every single one of us is that our emotions don't get to absorb us from being held accountable. We must speak of the role that each and every single of one of us plays. And once you begin to see how we all play a role in perpetuating or in facilitating gender-based violence, we will begin to be more sensitive to the matter, and particularly we'll begin to be more sensitive to those who are victimized and who are primary victims of the siege of gender-based violence. And I do think that, and that's why we're, for me, in terms of now, the authorities who are now supposed to be imposing superior logic or are supposed now to be directing the narrative and who are supposed to be guiding us along the way, once authorities have the specializations that they need and they put into place the kind of policies that are going to govern the discourse around gender-based violence, that is what's going to facilitate how we have the conversation of gender-based violence. For as long as we do not see a government and an authority that is committed to the discourse of gender-based violence in such a way that they want to be sensitive both to the victims to the matter as it affects each and every single person in the community, but also in such a way that they try to find solutions. Once you reach such a place in a time when we see the authority wanting to do that, we are going to see the conversation being driven by every Tom, Dick, and Harry who feel like they can have an opinion whenever they want to and when, when they feel like they should, which shouldn't be the case. It's a sensitive matter that must be handled with the sensitivity that, that it's needed 
but also must be handled with specification also as well. And I think that's not what's been happening. And if we are going to keep having the conversation of gender-based violence growing from all social media, unfortunately, we're not going to get anywhere. Because of those are characters, those are 180 characters, these are threads that have, that have no sensitivity whatsoever, no specialization or research invested in the matter. These are people that just feel like they have an opinion. And gender-based violence is not an opinion. It's an actual lived experience which is affecting each and every single person in our communities. Indeed it is. Now, when it comes to the the very authorities that you've just referred to, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to latch onto that because just a few weeks ago, we came off the back of the local government elections with multiple uh, political parties amongst those that were, that availed themselves for election, making all sorts of grand promises in terms of their plans to address this issue. And I, I, I like to offset that against the conversations of various conversations I've had both in my professional and personal capacity with with others who have been put off the idea of voting altogether simply because of their lack of trust in the in any of the political parties available to vote for in terms of their commitment and their ability to effectively address this issue and the ways in which um, this very issue has put off um, people off has put people off the idea of going to the polls and casting their vote was reflected in the results that filtered through from that local government election where multiple of the political parties that run that operate in this country reflected low turnout figures and uh, drops in votership in various pockets of South African society. In what ways do you think the lack of action taken by these political parties are further alienating the South African society from taking that action by way of getting to the polls and voting them out of, of those positions of power as and when they have the opportunity to do so. And uh, again, how with, without um, running the risk of treading on ground that we've already covered, what is the key to bringing those disheartened voices and figures back on side into the conversation to amplify their voices to hold these authorities accountable? Sure. You know, the politicking of people's lives and politicians... Um, just relegating people to just being numbers is, 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 is a devastating time in our country. And I think that it's obviously reflected in the policies of, an, of a number of these political parties that have, have no consciousness of the lived experiences of people on the ground. That, have, that, that hardly took ever time, you know, to consult communities, to go to communities, you know, and actually, you know, write policies from a point of honestly wanting to address lived experiences. And we see this with people obviously being despondent to voting and to participating in terms of in the democracy because they felt like they don't even benefit from a so-called democracy, right? And that's truly unfortunate. And I think that can only be addressed by truly going back to systems of, of engagement, right? by facilitating, and it can only be done by, by authorities. It must be done by authorities who are willing to fa- facilitate objective but progressive uh, consultation in our communities together with victims, together with perpetrators, together with communities, with experts, and with people that are going to see us through the conversation in such a way that we come out of conversation with valid answers. 
And I think really, essentially, and for me, this this 16 days of activism, the only thing that we kept regurgitating and we, we we must take from this is that we think that we have been talking and we have not been talking, we've just been talking at each other a lot. The authorities have not been engaging us, they've just been, you know, just been throwing stats at us, throwing so-called work at, at us. The community has not been engaging each other, they've just been talking at each other. And I'm until such a time and place where we have, we have properly organized environments where we are willing to have a constructive conversation that's going to move us forward, we're not going to get anywhere. We insist that in terms of authorities, in terms of those who have resources, we must continue to protect the victims because of we don't afford secondary victimization from people that have very little information or very little sensitivity around the matter. And I think part of also recognizing what the despondency of, of the community is also realizing that once political parties and once politicians stop talking at people, they will realize that people want to be heard. People have all of these stories, all of these lived experiences that they want to see reflecting in government, that they want to see reflecting in policies. And up until such a time, people are going to reflect and we are going to be against each other rather than being in a terminal place where we're trying to find each other. Lissakho, I'd like to pick your brain really quickly on the issue of rehabilitation. The idea that someone who or, or anyone who may have been a perpetrator of gender-based violence in the past can recognize the error of their ways and then some at some point down the line, years removed from that incident of the perpetration of gender-based violence, they now have the ability to speak on the issue and raise awareness against the issue. I've noticed that um, there's one particular popular example Example that I'm thinking of now, where a lot of criticism was leveled against this individual for for publicizing the fact that they are reformed or they have been rehabilitated in some way, recognizing the error of their ways, and are now using that um, using that experience to raise awareness against this issue. Is the is, what what are the for lack of a better term, what is the space for this rehabilitation to be viewed in a genuine light or or, or a light that can't be questioned in terms of it, its genuine nature, its authenticity? And um, is there such a thing as this, the, the, this idea of someone being reformed and being rehabilitated and learning from the error of their ways in terms of their perpetration of gender-based violence um, and then their raising awareness against this issue further down the timeline? Sure. You know, it it, it does go back to, again, the authorities and institutions and systems that are put into place, right? So let's think about someone who's sick. They go to the hospital and then when they come back and they're reintegrated into the the society, we truly do believe that they they are healed or they are in the process of healing. And there's some kind of confidence that is attached to people going to the hospital and then coming back to be reintegrated into uh, society because we, we somehow have a, a particular degree of confidence in the healthcare system that these are doctors, these are people that have particular specialization to identify the matter, 
deal with the matter, also help the patient to identify their problem and also orientate them around now having to deal with their illness, right? But in terms of our criminal justice system, people don't have that confidence in our criminal justice system. We literally see men go to prison or perpetrators go to prison and then we just see them come out of prison with no culture of reintegration through rehabilitation, right? So we have not recognized or we have not begun to recognize rehabilitation um, centers for what they need to do, right? They need to diagnose, they need to find perpetrators accountable, they need to put the align them to, to, to the responsibility that they need to play in terms of their role as perpetrators and then their role in terms of now being integrated into society. And the only person that should be allowed to be reintegrated into society is one such who understands their crime and who's willing to be held accountable for the crime, but also who's willing to now sort of like tell a story and also teach society through their crimes also as well. And we have not seen that. In fact, we know that once they go out of jail, they come back and they commit the very same crimes or they find other they find other forms of crimes and therefore other forms of uh, victims. So therefore, it goes back again to the confidence or sort of like the investment from authorities that they have not invested a culture of reintegration into society, right? I mean, there's a number of systems that have been put into place to facilitate these kind of things, you know, where just after serving your sentence, you can meet up, you know, the perpetrator is allowed to approach the victim, to have a solid conversation, just like what's happening now with uh, Oscar and um, what do you call uh, Oscar Pistorius and River's family, you know? They're now having a conversation about what does it mean for him to go out of jail? What is, why, what is it going to mean for uh, Oscar? What is it going to mean for River's family? They're facilitating this so that they allow him to know what is his responsibility when he gets into the society. But of course, for a number of people, we don't see that. For a number of communities, we don't see that. So it truly does go back to authority playing its role and in facilitating these processes and inspiring confidence. And clearly, there's nothing like that. So... In the interest of replying to the school of thought that um, that does exist in terms of the ways I've observed this conversation being had, where the idea that the introduction of harsher sanctions, harsher punishments, the reinstatement of the death penalty, for example, within our uh, correctional services, the, the introduction of harsher jail terms for those found guilty of uh, gender-based violence, that those interventions could go away towards addressing this issue. In your opinion, how effective do you think such measures being taken will be in the fight against the scourge of gender-based violence? Or are we at a stage where we are beyond any any of these interventions because they might not be nearly as effective as people imagine them to be? Uh, it's, it's, uh, more violence is not going to be as effective as we, we think that it's going to be, right? And we, we must start understanding gender-based violence also being rooted in the historically violence, the historical violence of South Africa, right? Whether it be from colonization into apartheid and then now into a dispensation that has still alienated so many people. And so the only thing that we have understood in terms of the relationship that we have with the institution of the authority is violence. 
And that violence trickles and is projected in our communities and among each other. And so more violence is not going to be the answer. So we are not going to get less violence men because we are going to be violent to men, you know. We are going to get less violence through the rehabilitation of society, through the re-socialization of society. This is going to mean it's going to be a project that's going to be, uh, must be invested in schools, that must be invested in, a, in, in, in our spaces of work, that must be invested in our families, that must be invested now in the church also as well, and in other institutions, you know, where people socialize, you know, with one another, you know. It's going to take the responsibility of everyone and everyone holding themselves accountable, yeah, but because whenever I get the idea that perhaps harsher sentences, you know, are going to mean better, and that's well and good, you know. Let's, for instance, take the issue of Aluta, the boy that slaughtered Uno Sikelo, you know. If he gets a harsher sentence and, 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 and he's thrown into, into jail and we throw away the keys, what then is the punishment of a society that has facilitated this violence by ignoring the matter, because we ignore a lot of that. We are bystanders in violence and violence against women and children. We say it in a singularity. We say, Yo, but, but, you know, things that, you know, even does our Tandani as in Jamie, you know. And we are facilitating this, therefore also making us um, accessories, you know, to violence against women and children. And so what is the, the, the punishment that is then going to come to the community? But perhaps punishment and the idea of vicious punishment is not the answer. But the idea of re-socialization, the idea of rehabilitation, and the idea of how men and women interact with one another and how we interact with kids is what's needed in the social fiber of society. Indeed. And to conclude our conversation, Lisekho, in the interest of those who might be listening to our conversation right now, who for whatever reason may feel disheartened or might have a pessimistic outlook in terms of this issue and whether or not it will ever be effectively addressed in this lifetime. I, I asked this on the back of a conversation I've had in my own personal capacity where the, the, the resolution that came out of that conversation was a degree of acceptance that needs to be made and given to the fact that this isn't an issue that any of us will be able to address in our lifetime, in our generation. It's an issue that is more than likely only going to start being addressed in generations to come. So in the interest of those who fall, who, who fall on either side of the, gender, of the gender divide, who may feel disheartened, who may feel like they harbor this pessimistic outlook on these, these rates of success of addressing this issue in this time, in this generation, in our lifetime, what would you? What words of of um, of wisdom and what words of um, of advice would you like to impart to those individuals to try to encourage them to find those moments and those spaces to keep the conversation going, to keep the work being done, to remain active in the space of doing this work to tackle this issue once and for all? I do want to say that the frustration of our people is valid whether it be from, from the frustration of gender-based violence and the literal discouragement of gender-based violence for many victims. And that is why we do the work that we do on a daily basis as Not In My Name International, because we try to organize sectors to say that we indeed do have lived experiences that must be addressed with the sensitivity that it deserves. 
but we also have a quite complex um, social issue that we are facing that deserves the robustness that, that, that is needed in this conversation. And what we are saying is that let us go back to community. Let us go back to the idea of let us go back to the idea of knowing that even if you know Ramaphorisa, they're not going to do much for your neighbor who you know is going to be abused. Perhaps you can do something. Your gesture of kindness may go a long way. And once we start going back to the idea of community, we are going to unify. And once authorities are confronted and they are met with communities that have unity, the communities that are thriving, on the idea of Motoke Motokabato and they are united, they are no longer going to divide them on pretty issues. The community is going to be resolute on their demands. A demand to be rehumanized as people, a demand to be recognized for their humanity. And up until such a time, nothing is going to happen. The conversation of gender-based violence literally needs for each and every single person, whether be it as a primary perpetrator or non-primary perpetrator, a primary victim or non-primary victim, to find yourself accountable and ask yourself, what can I do to make sure that, number one, we raise the awareness of the scourge of gender-based violence as it is, but also what can I do to help victims heal? Because it's a healing process more than anything for most people that have been victimized. And I think once we move in that directive and in that regard, I think that we don't afford to be discouraged. We must organize and we must insist on, 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 on wanting better, just as we insist on wanting, wanting jobs for young people, just as we insist for wanting a less racialized society, a less sexualized uh, sexist, sexist society. We must, must insist that we want a less violent society. So up until such a time, we are having a conversation about men being less violent to one another, being less violent to women and children. Men are not going to be less violent to, to you and me if they're not less violent to one another also as well. And so we must begin to confront violence and violence in all its forms, and even as we understand it, being institutionalized violence, which has literally alienated so many people in our country. Can't think of a better way to cap it off than that. Lisa joining us on the COVID report, representing Not In My Name International, civil rights organization at the forefront of the fight against the scourge of gender-based violence, not just in South Africa, but ooh, in various corners of the South African society. A big thank you to Lesejo for joining us here on the COVID Report. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or stream by www.varfm.co.za.